Well, I, um, I started looking at the Psalms a couple weeks ago. We looked at Psalm 1, and uh, believe it or not, today I'm going to do Psalm 2. What do you think I'm going to do after that? <laughs> if you'll take out your bulletin, I'm going to read Psalm 2 first. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let me, uh, let me give you kind of a news report of what's going on in the world and in the country. So, um, our country is as divided politically as it has ever been, and the two guys leading on uh, either party want to arrest each other and throw the other guy in jail. We are in a proxy war with nuclear Russia. Nuclear China is on the rise, flexing their muzzle, muzzles, their muscles. Okay. Roe versus Wade was overturned, but since then, abortions have increased 54% in Illinois. Okay. And who knew that when the Kinks wrote their song 50 years ago, Lola, yeah, that it might become our national anthem. Girls will be boys and boys will be girls. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. Right? So that's, that's where we are today. Happy Father's Day, you're dismissed. So, <laughs> so Psalm 2 is actually very relevant uh, today, it was written 3,000 years ago by King David, and it tells us that the world has always been a seething, raging world of rebellion against God. But what, what is God's attitude as the world shakes its fist at him? 
he laughs. He laughs. Because he has installed his anointed, and that, that is uh, the word anointed is translated and eventually becomes the word Messiah. He has installed his Messiah on the holy hill in Israel. It's talking about Jesus. And he will one day rule the world, we're told, with an iron scepter. So today's psalm is meant to give us an eternal perspective in the midst of this raging world against God. So I'll give you a little four-point outline. The, the, the first point is we're going to look at the raging world. Secondly, we're going to look at the laughing Lord. Thirdly, we're going to look at the ruling Son. And then fourthly, we're going to look at the, uh, the command to joyfully tremble. All right? So let's begin by looking at, at the raging world. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel and uh, the, the New American Standard says they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the, the picture is of the peoples of the world and the leaders of the world vainly, okay, vainly, powerlessly, uselessly raging against God. And they're trying to throw off his bonds and his cords, which are his laws. It's a picture of the world shaking its fist at God against his righteous laws. The, the picture that comes to mind for me is, and some of you are right in the middle of this, uh, a three-year-old having a temper tantrum against his 250-pound weightlifting dad. Right? The, the word why here, why do the nations rage, is not, it's not asking what's behind their raging. Rather, it's, it's asking how do they think they're going to get away with this? Why would they even try? And, and the answer is, there's no rational reason. Rebellion against God and his law is ultimately irrational. Right? Sin is irrational. It's based on delusion. In fact, in the book of Revelation... In chapter 12, there's a scene in heaven where Satan is thrown down to the earth. And it says this, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, there's that rage word again, because he knows that his time is short. 
There's no rationality. He's just, he knows he's going to lose, so he is in a rage. And I think the closer we get to the end, the more he is going to rage and the crazier it's going to get. Right? And we're, we're seeing that uh, today. Now, um, the irrational rage, it doesn't mean that there's no coordinated effort to rebel against God. Again, the, uh, the word here, they take counsel, can be translated, they conspire. Okay? They set themselves and they conspire together. There's a plotting that, that goes on. Um, so this, the whole gender confusion thing that's going on today you can look at it from a bunch of different perspectives, but ultimately, it is the world saying, we refuse to have the Creator create us a certain way. We don't like Him setting the rules, so we are going to rebel against the way we were created because we don't think there is a creator. What, what, uh, what they're doing is they're rebelling against the most basic of creation order. Here, uh, Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce. And he says, let me take you back to the very beginning of how God created marriage. He answered, have you not read... That he who created them, so once you introduce a creator, that changes uh, the view of just we evolved from slime. You see, if we just evolved from slime, it doesn't matter. There are no sexual ethics. But if there's a creator, he gets to set the rules. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, created them, male and female? There's male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two, the male and the female, shall become one flesh. There it is, pretty simple. It's not hard to understand. But are not the elites in government and in big tech and in big education, and in big entertainment, all conspiring together to try to burst God's bonds and cast off his cords. We, we see Psalm 2 living out before us. The nations raging and, and furious that God as the creator has made the world a certain way and he gets to set the rules. So that's the raging world. Now, what's the Lord's reaction? He laughs. He who sits in heaven laughs. You know, there's an attribute of God called God's impassibility. Not impossibility, but his impassibility. It means that whatever happens here on earth God is never ultimately rattled. 
because in the end, he wins. He's in control, and he wins. Kind of the picture I get, and, and, and there's so much to learn from this little incident where, where Mary and Martha invite Jesus and the disciples over for dinner. And Mary is quietly sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's in the kitchen banging the pots and pans around, and she is furious that her good-for-nothing sister is not helping with the dinner. And she actually comes in and disturbs the teaching and says, Jesus, don't you care about me? That my, that my sister has left me to do all the work and she's raging and she's, you know, you, you know you're upset when you're yelling at Jesus, right? <laughs> right? And what does Jesus do? Martha, Martha. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't say he laughed, but I just see a little smirk on his face, you know. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. No, she's chosen the best thing. I'm not going to take it away from her. You're, you're worried and bothered about too many things. That, that's the picture I get of God in heaven as the world shakes its fist at him. Now, it doesn't just say he laughs. Next, there are three words that are terrifying. The Lord holds them in derision, disdain. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. All right? So it's, it's laughter combined with wrath. Okay? So I thought back to some of the Old Testament occurrences where we see a combination of God's wrath, yet there's some humor involved. For example, um, at one point, the Ark of the Covenant gets lost, and the Philistines recover it. And they put it in their temple uh, to their god Dagon. Dagon was a fish god. And sometimes what, what pagans would do is, is they would uh, take an idol, if they stole an idol from another nation, and they would put it in submission to their God. So they put the Ark of the Covenant at the feet of Dagon in their temple. And the next day, Dagon falls over. And they said, Dagon. It's Father's Day. (laughs) All right, so then they go, well, let's put him back up. And they put him back up. And the next day they come in and he fell down a second time. And this time his head is cut off. And his, I don't know if his hands or his little fish fins are cut off. Right? But, But this is God humorously exercising wrath upon the Philistines. Then there's, there's the time Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. And they have a, uh, 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 an animal sacrifice 
on top of wood. It's been, there's been a drought for, uh, for three years. So to make sure that nobody's cheating, they douse the sacrifice with water. And um, Elijah says, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to call on my God to, to bring fire down. But before I do, why don't you guys give it a try? So they start hooting and hollering and slashing themselves with swords and praying to their God, and nothing happens. And Elijah starts mocking them. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, you know, he's thinking deeply, or he's relieving himself. That's in the Bible. Or he's on a journey, he's on a trip. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So he's mocking their God. And then he says, all right, I'm going to call on my God. And God answers with fire. Fire comes down. And then Elijah says, grab them, all 450, and he puts them to death with the sword. God laughs and exercises his wrath. Then there's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world, king of Babylon. He's walking around Babylon saying, look at this great Babylon that I've created. I am so awesome. And because of his uh, lack of humility, God turns him into a beast. For seven years, he loses his mind. He, he, his claws grow and he eats grass with the beasts of the field. And then his sanity is restored and he praises God. In the New Testament, in fact, we just did this this study with the ladies at Heritage Woods. Um, King Herod has killed the Apostle James. And then he arrests Peter. And uh, Peter's put in prison. He's being guarded by four squadrons of four soldiers, so 16 soldiers. And God sends an angel into the prison cell, picks the locks, and grabs Peter by the hand and walks past all 16 guards, and he's free. Well, Herod doesn't like this. So just in a casual statement, it says, so he put the the soldiers to death. So he kills 16 soldiers. He's killed the apostle James. And then at the end of the chapter, it says that Herod went up to Caesarea, and um, we've been there, right? There's the stadium um, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. This is up on the northern part of Israel. And uh, Herod was sitting here in the audience. And what's funny is this is this old, ancient amphitheater. And when we were there, um, Snoop Dogg and Hall and Oates were playing. (laughs) So (laughs) famous people like Herod and Snoop Dogg have played at this theater here. Um, but Herod is sitting here, and the people gather, and they start flattering him. They're saying, oh, he's like a god, he's like a god. And it says, because he accepted this praise, God struck him down, 
he was eaten by worms, and then he died. And I always like to point out the order. It was worms first, then he died, right? Death by worms. But here you have, here you have uh, God laughing at the rebellion and exercising his wrath, right? A lot of people don't like to hear this, this side of God. He is a righteous judge, and he can exercise wrath. Now, let's look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. All right, so, so God has placed his, okay, so, so listen carefully, his human representative, but we know he's also fully God, but this is referring to Jesus. He has placed Jesus on the throne, on his holy hill, right? Now, look at what happens in the New Testament to the anointed, to Jesus, and how they quote from Psalm 2. The early church quotes uh, from Psalm 2. So here's what, what, what it says. And when they heard it, so the apostles had been arrested for preaching the gospel, brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, they were threatened not to preach again. They were released. And when the early church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, so David wrote the psalm, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, so he's, he's saying David's the author and the Holy Spirit's the author, okay? Scripture teaches that Scripture has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, okay? Said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. Who do they think the anointed is? For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, okay, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here you have one of these passages where you have the sinfulness of man, and man is being held accountable, and the sovereignty of God coming together. And, and the point is, while the nations are trying to kill, and they did kill Jesus, it's all according to God's sovereign plan. And God can laugh and say the worst thing possible, the killing of Jesus, is all according to plan because ultimately what that did was it purchased our salvation. Okay? So, we have the nations raging. And then we have God laughing because he's in control and exercising his wrath because he's installed his anointed on his holy hill in Jerusalem. But now, 
let's look at the ruling son. So here, what happens is the anointed one, the Messiah, is actually speaking in the psalm. So he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So this is, okay, so so follow this. This is David, Holy Spirit inspired, writing first in his own life as the anointed, but ultimately pointing to Jesus, the ultimate anointed one. And here's what the Lord God says to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now you go, wait a minute. What does that mean? How can it be that God begot David and How can it be said that Jesus was begotten? Well, whoever the king was in Israel was considered to be the Son of God. And he was begotten through adoption the day he was anointed. So David was anointed, right, with oil. That's what what, um, Messiah means, is the anointed one. Okay, So on the day of his coronation... He becomes the anointed son of God. Okay, But now this can get confusing because the term begotten can be used of an earthly king in one way, but it's used of Jesus in a different way. Okay, Both Jesus and David were begotten, and and that means God announces that that this person is the Son of God. Okay? David was begotten. It was announced when he was anointed. It was announced that Jesus is the begotten Son, not through anointing, but through his resurrection. In fact, in Romans... It speaks of the son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So Jesus came through the Davidic line and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's saying he was declared to be the Son of God by God raising him from the dead. Okay, Now, you say, that, is that when he became the Son of God? No. That's when it was clearly announced. But we know from the whole of Scripture that Jesus has always been the only begotten Son of God. David was an adopted son of God. Jesus was the actually, uh, actual uh, son of God for eternity. So the Nicene Creed refers to, to Jesus as having been eternally begotten. 
And what, what that's trying to convey is the idea that the Son comes from the Father, but never was there a time when He didn't exist. He's eternally generated from the Father. Okay? So, the difference between King David as a begotten Son of God and Jesus uh, as an eternally begotten Son of God is, is both were announced to be sons of God, but never was there a time when Jesus wasn't begotten. You follow all that? Okay, good. All right. Now, um, having clarified that, here is Jesus telling us what God the Father said to him. And here's what God said to him. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, all you got to do is ask, and I will give you the world. And you will rule the, the, the world with an iron scepter. Okay? Now, um, question is, when, when is this referring to? In fact, let me show you. Uh, let's, let's get into the end times a little bit here. Okay? So, most people have this concept that there's the first coming of Jesus... And then at his second coming, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, okay, um, where everything will be in perfect harmony. The, the wicked will be judged, but um, the righteous will inherit the earth, okay? But why would there then be, during this perfection, a need for the Lord to rule with an iron scepter? So, what many people believe is that there's a, a period of time, and you read about this in Revelation chapter 20, after the Lord returns to the earth, but before the new heaven and the new earth, that's called the millennium, the thousand-year period. Okay? And the idea is... Here we are now where the nations are raging. Jesus will return to earth. It's not perfection yet. And he will rule the nations here on earth for a thousand years with perfect justice. So let me show you a, a, an interesting verse um, that it's, it, it can't be the, the, the perfected state and it's not describing now. But it says this in Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, right, shall go forth the law 
and the word of God from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. So there's still disputes. There's judgment going on. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No more war because Jesus is in control. The nations are not raging, but there's still disputes. And they still go to Jerusalem uh, to, to learn from the Lord. So this seems to be a way to fit that all together. Now, regardless of your end-time view, bottom line, Jesus wins. The rebelling nations will be judged, and he is in control. So the final thing we want to look at is this. We're called to joyfully tremble. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So here the psalmist speaking for God is giving fair, fair warning. Be wise, stop your rebellion, and come to the Lord in repentance. Rejoice with trembling. Now you go, wait, wait, if you're rejoicing, can you be trembling? trembling? And if you're trembling, can you be rejoicing? Yeah, I've seen uh, on many wedding days, both bride and groom trembling, <laughs> yet rejoicing, right? Um, I, I hope every time we come to worship, we're both rejoicing and trembling. Not because we fear going to hell, but because we realize how awesome the God we serve truly is. Okay? In fact, Isaiah 66, 2 says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, God, God speaking, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We can get a little too overly casual with God, right? C.S. Lewis in the Narnia books has Mr. Beaver telling Susan, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the Lord. He's the creator. Come before him with rejoicing and trembling. And then the psalm ends with this. Kiss the sun. Worship the sun. Right? Not just intellectually, but this is a, a personal 
act of devotion. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Okay? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this, this may give you the wrong impression like he's just this rageaholic, you know, ready to just break out in wrath at any moment and he's uncontrollable. Well, no. How does it fit with Numbers 14, 18? The Lord is slow to anger. Right? The, the, the first verse says, His wrath is quickly kindled. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. I think the way you reconcile this is to realize that in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is talking to those who have taken God's patience for granted. You can presume upon him for such a long time without submitting to him that God's wrath is justified to break out at any time. Okay? Now, it ends with, blessed are those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to take refuge in him? And again, if he's a lion... Isn't that a scary thing? Well, to take refuge in him is rather than running from him in rebellion, you run to him because he has taken his own wrath upon himself so you don't have to fear. You know, I've, I've given this illustration before where the... the the fire is coming toward the little farmhouse and the farmer goes out and he takes a gallon of gasoline and pours a circle uh, out in the field and burns that out and then he has his family stand in the circle and the fire rages around and the little girl says, I'm scared. And he says, don't be afraid. We're standing where the fire has already been. Right? And uh, Josh and Sydney are going to be coming over later today. Sydney's family lives on a mountain in California, and they have wildfires. And she says, oh yeah, we had to do that once. We burnt the grass around the house. So when the fires came, we would be standing where the fire already has been. Right? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How? by running to him, by standing where the fire has already been. I pray that all of us have done that. We've come to Christ and we are not rebelling against him, but we are bowing the knee, kissing him, worshiping him, because he took the wrath for us. All right, let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you win, that you are sovereign. We're grieved at a rebelling world, but Lord, we pray that multitudes would, would come and kiss the Son, repent of sin, and flee to you, take refuge in you, not run away from you. And Lord, I pray that, that each one here would have done that in their heart, that we would definitively repent, stop running from you and run to you and kiss you.
because you have taken the wrath away. Lord, I pray uh, for the, the fathers this Father's Day that you would bless their time. And uh, Lord, we pray for our kids that as, uh, as they grow, they would truly submit their hearts to you and give you all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.